Hello, and welcome. This week, The Natural Selection presents Butterflies. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to The Natural Selection presents. We're presenting this week, Butterflies. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Nick. Hello. Naomi. Hi. And other Nick, who, which this week is me. Hello. Before we get started with the first section of our podcast today, Nick, would you like to give our listeners a little bit of a preview for who we are? Sure thing, Nick. Uh, we are the Natural Selection, a group of taxonomists who try to bring our passion for nature into the wild. So each week we just gather and have a little chat about the natural world. In the first section, we talk about nature news and interesting research that we found this past week. But in the second section, we talk about a different theme and how that sort of relates to flora and fauna all around the world. And this week's theme is butterflies and moths. I'm making right now the sound of a butterfly flapping its wings just for dramatic effect. But if you can't hear it, it's okay. It's quite subtle. Thank you, Nick. And hello, everyone. I think we'll get started this week, as we usually do, by sharing any fun nature sightings of the week, guys. I found a collection of fruit flies on a clean towel. What were they doing there? I don't know, because I have fruit nearby that they weren't interested in. That's... I I hate to say this, but suspicious. Isn't it? Yes. Isn't it? And it genuinely... And I know that sounds really, like, trivial and stupid, but it genuinely got me thinking about why this clean towel had attracted them. There must have been something about it which made these flute fries drawn to it. It got me thinking about maybe the detergent or maybe there was sugar somehow in it. But Mm. I really don't have an answer. Mm. Did it have any sort of pattern? Uh, It was white. It was white. Which I don't know if that influenced, because that would be bright. I don't know. I just, I just, I really don't have an answer for what happened there. But it was, it was a a lot of them. Well, they were having some sort of convention. Uh, yeah. which means that they're definitely, well, 80% chance they were up to no good. <laughs> Naomi, how about you? Any interesting animal encounters? No, actually, I was thinking today, I decided that my animal encounter would be kind of a, a classic animal encounter that I always, so I always see them, but I never mention them on the podcast, but I saw some mallards today, hmm. so I thought I would mention them. Did you see any drakes, any of the males? I think so. I think it was most mostly females. I feel like there was one male. There's a, a pond near where I live that mostly has females, but occasionally you get the males, and I love their the spot on the wing that comes through. The, like, oh yeah. Wing spot of iridescence in between like the bars of white. I love that. Mm. You know, as they say, time butterflies. So on we go. Now time waits for no moth. Just a, this is a little peek behind the curtain again. We we keep a document for each episode, and we do our research sort of scattered throughout the document. And sometimes we look through beforehand and take a look at what everyone else is working on before we meet for our episode. And Naomi, this week I looked through and I saw your news, and I thought this has nothing to do with butterflies. What are you thinking? And then I of course realized it was for the news, but it's actually really interesting, even though it's not about butterflies. You want to talk about something that might eat a butterfly, a lizard. So my piece of research this week came from Current Biology, 
and it was produced by researchers from all across the Americas, so from Canada, North America, and South America. And it was looking at the annual lizards, and basically it was based on this piece of anecdotal evidence of one of the researchers, one of his professors, had seen this lizard run into a river and produces air bubble in its nose, and it stayed in the river. So they went to Chile, and they were looking at these type of lizards. They caught 300 annual lizards, which represented a range of species, and they caught 120 of them near streams and the rest of them away from the streams. And then what they did was they dumped each of these lizards into a container of river water, and they found that when they were underwater, the, the lizards carried a little bubble of air around their snouts, and it appeared to be breathing this bubble in and out. So they found that the ones that were river-based were able to stay in longer and that they rebreathed more often. And they also then tested, because they assume they're rebreathing this oxygen, they would think that the levels of oxygen would go down over time. And they found that they did because they tested it as well. You know, they're kind of suggesting, they don't know yet, but they're suggesting maybe the li lizards might be able to reduce or slow down their metabolism. Or perhaps they're able to do something that can balance out the level of carbon dioxide. Maybe they can remove some of the carbon dioxide from the bubble. And they think that their skin, their water-repellent skin, maybe have something to do with the fact that they're able to make this little bubble. Because it's quite rough, and they think that it traps like a thin layer of air against the skin. And then when they go into the water, they're able to kind of breathe into this layer of air. So they think they recorded one lizard was able to stay under the water for 18 minutes. Wow. The thing that shocks me most about that, besides the whole thing where lizards can keep a pocket of air around their face underwater, is the fact that in the end it was connected to butterflies via the title of a 2008 movie, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, based off the 1997 book, The Diving Bells for Lizards. How cool. <laughs> I like that. I like that connection at the end. Thank you. So that's fun. That's really fun. I think all of our news this week has to do with things, faces, vertebrates' faces. So to use that brilliant connection, I'm going to lead into Nick's news this week, which has to do with facial adaptations in a different clade of vertebrates. Mine's about snakes. I like a snake. Now, this is really interesting. So this was looking at snake evolution. So perhaps when most of us think of snake bites, we think of venom. When snakes inject venom, what they have is they have specialized teeth with grooves in, which uh, run through them, and they guide the venom into, a, uh, into the wound that they've just made by biting you. But uniquely among animals, grooved and tubular teeth have evolved many times in snakes, and they're actually quite a complex structure. So why are snakes able to do this? So they do know that they have evolved many times and that probably the common ancestor of all fanged snakes uh, had no fangs. And that's because otherwise they would have, in all the non-venomous snakes, they would have lost this trait many times over, which is much less likely than it having evolved independently. And on top of that, the fangs appear in different ways. So the most scary one to me when I think of a snake bite is the hinged front fangs, you know, those ones that pop out as they open their mouth. But there are also fixed front fangs. Yeah, things like from taipans. And there are rear fangs from things like the crab-eating water snakes. And they actually have their fangs at the back of the mouth to administer venom. 
yeah, nothing like those big hinged front ones that we expect from vipers. So why was this able to evolve so many times in snakes? What makes them so special? Well, what they, this research was suggesting, and this was a group of researchers from around the world led by uh, uh, Alessandro Palchi, and it was printed in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. What they were suggesting is because snakes, very much like sharks, regenerate their teeth, uh, they have to find a way to attach their teeth as well as they can when they're growing anew into their into their mouth. They have this structure called placidentine. And what this is, is this is a, a bunch of folds in the top of the tooth, which basically give it a bigger surface area, which they think uh, will help it grip when it's growing anew. So when uh, so yeah, it's less likely to fall out when they're replacing their teeth. But because of these folds, it gives them a unique opportunity because one of these folds in the venomous ones essentially just is much bigger than the other ones and creates a groove instead of a, a tight fold. And this groove can then go along the whole tooth and be used to administer venom. So it's this unique structure which was uh, there to help them grow their teeth, which is actually co-opted to help them administer venom. And that's why they're able to evolve it so many separate times. And interestingly, there is some evidence from this because there are some lizards that have these uh, structures. And the Gila monster has these structures and they administer venom in the same way with that groove. So there is evidence from other uh, groups of animals as well. So that's why, yeah, snakes are able to do this. Or at least that's why they think. All right, I've got two things to thank you for, Nick, in that news that you've just given us. The first, thank you for pronouncing Gila monster the way that you did. It's, you know, often that you that I hear people not from the area call them Gila monsters. Cool. They're super cool. I love them. They move super slow. They're beautiful. They live in the desert. But great. They like have. you. Like me. <laughs> Thank you. Super slow, cool, beautiful, live in the desert. I'll take it. Um, the other thing I wanted to thank you for is for talking about teeth and for mentioning shark teeth, which is what I'm going to talk about. So you make my job easy today, Nick. Thanks. With that smooth transition, you, the, really, it's just it's a gift. I'm going to move into talking about tooth morphology. This is a geometric morphometric study of shark teeth. So looking at the shape of shark teeth to try to figure out how they evolved during the time period of the end Cretaceous mass extinction. So when the dinosaurs went extinct about 66 million years ago, a lot of changes around the world were happening and a lot of different clades shifted, changed, moved around. And this study was looking to see what happened in shark teeth. It was a study published last week in PLOS Biology, led by a team of researchers mostly at Uppsala University and I think one researcher in Australia. The shark fossil record sort of represents an interesting, there's a lot of shark fossils, but it's an interesting, it's a tricky one because it's mostly represented by isolated teeth that have been shed over the course of a shark's life. So you don't have these articulated skeletons of sharks because the cartilage of a shark's skeleton doesn't preserve very well. But you have the teeth, which are solid, uh, like a dentine, and they're very hard and they preserve quite well, even separate from the body. So most shark fossils are teeth. And most studies look at the sort of diversity of teeth over time to see how changes in evolution are happening over large timescales. But this study is looking at the shape of the teeth in different clades to see how morphological disparity or variation occurred during this time period, specific time period of 66 million years ago. What they found is that essentially sharks across the whole group of the shark family tree maintained pretty much the same level of dental disparity or variation in their shape of their teeth across almost all of their groups during this time period, which is shocking because 
many different groups of animals went extinct at this time completely like huge groups dinosaurs pterosaurs for example completely gone the mammals almost went entirely extinct and only one tiny clade of them survived and then diversified into the mammals we know today uh, the only other groups that really clearly made it through were some marine invertebrates and actually the amphibians did a pretty good job during this period as well but it turns out the sharks weren't really affected by this mass extinction that was happening around the world and instead you see a complex morphological response to this extinction event so some clades did respond in changing the the diversity and shape of their teeth a couple did go extinct but many more diversified during this time period which i think it's pretty cool that sharks were able to like coast through this extinction period that wiped out the dinosaurs completely the the dominating terrestrial landforms whereas the sharks were pretty okay though I, this is a little side research I did, and I wanted to tag this on at the end to say that today, actually, the numbers of oceanic sharks and rays have described at what's been called an alarming rate. I mean, alarming even considering how many other things are going extinct, but about 71% of the total number of sharks and rays in the last 50 years has uh, disappeared from the oceans. So it's what basically researchers are agreeing is unprecedented risk for extinction among all the shark groups. So the sharks may have survived 66 million years ago, the, extin the extinction around the world, but they may not survive the one that's happening now. So on that brilliant, bright note, I think that brings us to the end of our news section. The French would say, Finn. Join us after this short break, where we talk about our theme this week butterflies. Welcome back, listeners, and welcome to this section of The Natural Selection Presents Butterflies, which is our delicious theme for the week. Though maybe you don't need butterflies. We're going to start off right off the bat with the question on everybody's brain. What is the difference between butterflies and moths? And to answer that question today, we have our field correspondent, Naomi. Hello. So yes, I thought when we decided on our theme of butterflies and moths this week, I thought a good way to start off would be to what is the difference? Because I always ask people this and then I always forget. So I thought, okay, finally, I'll, I'll learn the difference for myself. Unfortunately, in classic style, the answer isn't perhaps as satisfying as, as one might want. Uh, but before we start, when I'm talking about butterflies and moths, they are in the Lepidoptera, which is an order of insects that includes the butterflies and moths. It comes from ancient Greek, which means scale and wing. So there's about 180,000 species within the Lepidoptera, which includes 126 families and 46 superfamilies. So that's actually 10% of all living organisms, which is kind of cool. Most of what I found that to do with the difference between butterflies and moths comes from butterflyconservation.org and this one particular article. The article starts off by talking about kind of some of the misconceptions, perhaps, of some of the things that people say that are differences between butterflies and moths. So some people say that maybe moths are dull and butterflies are brightly colored. That's not necessarily true. And another one that people say is that Butterflies are around during the day and moths are around during the night. And roughly speaking, most moths are nocturnal, but there are some diurnal moths. There are also some crepuscular moths. And in addition, some butterflies as well, uh, particularly in, in the UK, the Red Admiral, they'll fly at night when they're on migration. So those ones aren't necessarily a good way of telling. 
between a, a butterfly and a moth? There's some rules of thumb we can look at. For example, butterflies usually have club-shaped antennae, whereas moths will have feathery or tapered antennae. Another one we can look at is how their wings sit when they're resting. So generally, butterflies hold their wings vertically over their backs, while most moths will hold their wings horizontally when they're at rest. But there are also some ones that don't do it that way. So it is a useful guide, but there are exceptions to these rules, unfortunately. And so this article points out that really there's actually not that much of a difference between the two. And people find it kind of troubling because really it's kind of like a language difference. You know, and society has different words and different attitudes toward these two groups even though there's not really one. So it's kind of more of a cultural concept, perhaps, than a scientific one. Interestingly, these, as I mentioned, this group contains, you know, up to maybe 180,000 species, a lot that are undescribed, but only 18,000 of those are butterflies. So the rest are moths. And say if we look particularly at Britain as a situation, there's 60 butterfly species and about 2,500 moths. So it's interesting that I think the thing that people often think about is probably butterflies over moths, but there's much more moths than there are butterflies. And so I also wanted to kind of go into a little bit of the taxonomy of these groups, but I found that it seems to be quite complex. So Butterflies are grouped together. They're thought to be monophyletic. And they are kind of contained within a superfamily, but there also seems to be some other groups that now should be included with this that haven't been previously included. Just to end, I will talk about some record holders in the butterfly and moth world. The fastest butterfly is a skipper. They fly up to 37 miles per hour, and they have some of the nature's fastest reflexes pretty cool. The biggest butterfly is the Queen Alexandra's birdwing and the female of these has a wingspan that measures around 27 centimeters and they're endangered and they live in the rainforests of northern Papua New Guinea and the longest migration of any butterfly is the Painted Lady and the Painted Lady completes an impressive 9,000 mile journey from tropical Africa to the Arctic Circle. And finally the longest proboscis belongs to the Morgan Sphinx moth, which I think we may be getting to find out a little bit more about later. I do know on one of their migrations, it's like three generations long. So the butterfly that starts it is not the butterfly that ends it. I don't know if that's the same as the Painted Lady one. It's the one in America. But yeah, the grandparent sets off and the grandchild arrives in this migration, which blows my mind. That's the monarch, I think. Yes, it is. This one is the same. They It's completed in stages and up to six successive generations spending their lives flying south. Wow. And then they yeah. fly back the other way later. I, I believe so. Amazing. So they just recently took the crown from the monarch butterfly. I guess they shouldn't be called the monarch butterfly then. Bing, bing, bing. It sounds like we don't have an easy answer for how to distinguish butterflies and moths, but we have a lot more information. And that's, I think, even more valuable. Well, unless you're trying to determine whether that thing is a butterfly or moth. But in the case of 
you know, knowing more about taxonomy and the wildlife around us. There we go. Thank you, Naomi. You mentioned something in early on when you were talking about the Lepidoptera, order of insects that includes the butterflies and moths. The name comes from the Greek lepid or lepido for scale and terra for wing, like pterodactyl. And that's what I want to talk today about today is their scales. So I did some research to figure out what it is exactly that a butterfly's scale does. And it seems like they can do a bunch of cool things. They're really beautiful under the microscope. If you look up some pictures of like the SEM microscope pictures of butterfly scales, but the colors of their wings, which the scales make up on the macro scale, serve a huge range of purposes from mating attraction and sexual selection to camouflage to those sort of scare and surprise camouflage that we talked about in our camouflage episode, and also thermoregulation. They can help butterflies keep cool or warm, depending on, uh, because their underside and open part of the wings are different colors, they can, they have different reflectivity and absorption of the sun's rays. So they can keep themselves regulated in that way. The overall structure of the scales themselves, not just the color, is commonly believed to assist with aerodynamics, with self-cleaning, And particularly, this one came up often and seems pretty specific to me, but I'm willing to accept it. Easy release from spider webs. Apparently, they're quite easily detachable. And if the wing is caught in a spider's web, then it can separate and leave the scales attached and the butterfly can survive. So that's a bunch of adaptations for one little wing. But deep down, when you look closely, they're not just one little wing. They've got tiny, tiny, tiny scales. And on both sides, they have a grainy side and a smooth side, the scales do. And the grainy side is considered the top, which is the facing out on the wing on both sides. So the grainy side faces out, and that's what helps with aerodynamics and the coloring and everything else. On the grainy side, there are periodic nanostructures of chitin and air that sort of alternate with each other. The chitin is sort of in these ridges, which create the color when it reflects this structural color that we've now talked about for several episodes in a row. And they're arranged in a series of rows like shingles on a house, which I think is a pretty cool analogy. They're like overlapped on one on on each edge. So you could imagine water running down them like like water running down the shingles on a house, except that water would be too large to run down these scales because they're microscopic or nanoscopic. Now, what the research I was looking at, they were trying to figure out if there's any sort of common rules that regulate all of these butterfly scales, butterfly scales all around the world and moth scales all around the world with all different colors and all different sort of climates and ecologies. And it turns out that almost all butterfly moth scales have a single common scaling law. The distance between two ridges in the scales is about twice their height. So they have this sort of regular scaling of the scales, regardless of their scale size, which I think is a pretty interesting structural thing. But it's something that I don't, I can't dive into much more because I got distracted during this research looking up something that I remembered about butterfly scales. And this is going to take us on a another wing, if you will, down a different path to talk about the art of A micrographer, I don't know if that's how you pronounce that, but someone who is known for his micrography (laughs) or his microscopy, Uh, he was an excellent uh, preparator of microscopic slides in his time in the 1800s, Harold Henry Dalton. And 
I saw his work for the first time at the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles. And his, the work that he's best known for are micro mosaics, little still lives and collages like flowers and nature scenes and little meadows made entirely from the scales of butterflies. And the, you can only see them under a microscope. So he would put them together by hand, taking one scale at a time with a pair of microscopic tweezers and planting them onto a microscopic slide and adhering them by pressing down onto the scales, which released an, which releases an oil that adhered them to the glass. So they're like totally natural micro mosaics, really wild. There's very little information about them or about this artist, uh, micrographer, Henry Dalton that you can see them on display at the Museum of Jurassic Technology. But the website online for this museum is the only source of information that I could find about him or his micro mosaics. And to make things worse, the museum itself is infamous for blending fact and fiction, for things that are real and things that are fake. So it's a bit of a confusing story and I couldn't find much more information about it. But I've seen these micro mosaics in person they're real and they're made from real butterfly scales and they're very small. And even though the identity of this artist remains a mystery and whether or not this was really someone from the 1800s making butterfly mosaics, these butterfly mosaics exist and other people have made them as well. And they're worth looking up online or in person at the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Take a look for butterfly micro mosaics. So that's me on Lepidoptera, the scale wings. But I think that will lead us nicely into a topic that Nick wanted to talk about today, which is some of the other incredible and adaptations and morphological variation in the butterflies, but through a strange route. Butterflies are quite distinctive insects. And, and as you mentioned, their wings are probably the most distinctive and they have the most amazing patterns on them. But one of the reasons they have the most amazing patterns is they're incredibly good at mimicry. Those wings are very, very delicate, so they often have to mimic other things as a form of protection. So you often see those eyes on there, which are made to look like owl's eyes, because if an owl is looking at something, it's much less likely to go over. Uh, some of them have even evolved mimicry of the light reflection of an owl's pupil, which is, yeah, amazing. But why might they need this? Well, they get eaten a lot, uh, a lot, a lot. So it's estimated that every year, blue tits eat 50 billion caterpillars in Great Britain and Ireland alone. 50 billion? Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So you can see why they're sort of like looking for protection. But the other thing that they're amazing at is eating. So caterpillars are very famous for eating their way through various plants um, to the point where plants evolve incredible defences against caterpillars uh, to stop them doing this. Interestingly, do you know the etymology of caterpillar? No, no, actually I don't. Yeah, the construction brand is named after the insect. Yeah, actually hairy cat. Uh -huh. Which is weird for me because cats are already hairy, but we'll let that go. Does the cat, how, does they, how are they cats? I really don't know. But even in German, it, it's something cat. And I can't remember what it was. But yeah, they're, they're named after cats all across Europe. Really weird. What they're really, really good at is flowers. So they evolved hundreds of millions of years ago. And they sort of diversified with the flowering plants, the angiosperm. And they evolved specific mouthparts for this purpose. While caterpillars tend to have mandibles like other insects where they can chew, the adults tend to have these long tubular proboscises where they can dip it into flowering plants to access the nectar, 
But while they do, they pick up the pollen and then go to a new plant and spread it. So for some plants, it pays to be really, really specific. So they can actually have quite impressive lock and key mechanisms where only certain species of Lepidoptera are able to bend their tongue in a certain way to get to the nectar because they only want that species of Lepidoptera to drink the nectar. And that's because that means that it will only visit those plants. So it will not waste any pollen um, by them going to other plants like things like bees do where they, they visit lots and lots of different things. And because of this, there was quite an amazing discovery is the wrong word, prediction. And it was done by Charles Darwin. And what happened is he was sent a flower from Madagascar. But what was amazing about this flower was its nectary was a foot long. From tip to tip of the spur of the flower was about 35 centimetres, 20 to 35 centimetres. Its name, sesquipedale, the, for the plant, is Latin for one and a half feet, referring to the spur length. And because of this, he'd never ever seen the Lepidoptera. But what he said is, if the plant is this long, it means there must be a Lepidoptera with a tongue this long. Uh, because why else would this plant evolve? And Darwin said, this will exist. Go and look for it. And a few years later, they found it. And the pollinator moth with a proboscis long enough to reach the nectar at the end of that spur was Xanthopan morgani. You uh, named its common name earlier, Naomi. That is the one with the longest proboscis. And it is, yeah, about a foot long. Uh, it's quite an amazing as a tongue goes when you when you look at it. It, it looks ridiculous. But yeah, it's just an example of these sort of specialised evolutions because they evolve with flowering plants. And if you think how elaborate flowering plants have got, the things that eat from them have evolved equally elaborate apparatus. And yeah, this moth shows that off quite nicely cool like puzzle piecing together of that it's sort of like it reminds me of the periodic table of the elements mendeleev was like there should be elements that are like this this and this because he had sort of really figured out the system and darwin's doing something similar with with coevolution. it's cool your topic nick was about a fun name Z xanthopan don't laugh don't laugh that wasn't meant to be the takeaway, but yeah, sure. Yeah. So the takeaway there that I got was that you got a fun species name out of this, uh, Xanthopan. And because of my brilliant hosting this week, we're going on that as our connector. Uh, Xanthopan leads me directly to myxomatosis, uh, another cool word with an X in it, which is what Naomi wants to talk about today, myxomatosis and the big blue. Yeah, so this is kind of a cool and complicated story about a butterfly that I thought I would introduce. So I want to talk about the large blue butterfly. So this is a species that actually went extinct in the British Isles in the 70s. So in 1979, it became extinct. And so they were doing some really in-depth research trying to figure out what happened. And so this butterfly actually has kind of a complex life history, and they had kind of a few factors. But eventually they narrowed it down to one specific factor. And basically it was due to the loss of another species. And it was due in particular to the loss of a species of ant. Because the large blue butterfly is actually a parasite of these ants. So the red ant, Myrmica sabuleti. And they use this, these caterpillars of the butterfly they use a specific scent to trick the ant into carrying them into their nests. And then 
they feed on the ants' brood during the winter. So they also have other ants that they can use, but they do much better with this particular species of ant. And it's kind of a really delicate balance as well, because they obviously don't want to have too many butterflies in one ant's nest, because either the ants will get wise and they'll kick them out, or they'll eat all the ants, and there won't be any more ants to to eat. So it's kind of a, a balance there of not wanting to have too many. But interestingly, these ants are only found where the grass is shorter. So when a change in the height of the grass by just one or two centimeters causes a temperature change of two to three degrees in the ant's nest, which is below the surface. And this species of ant can't cope with these lower, lower soil temperatures and they become crowded out by other ant species that can survive better in these conditions. And so, do you guys know, have you got any guesses why and what caused this change in grass height? Some sort of herbivore. Yes, so rabbits normally graze the site, but an epidemic of the disease myxomatosis caused the rabbit population to shrink significantly. And so therefore the site became overgrown, and then this unbalanced everything and changed this kind of really sensitive species balance. And therefore the large blue butterfly went extinct. And they kind of knew it was going extinct, or not knew it was doing quite badly for a while, but they couldn't really do anything, one, because they didn't really understand what was going on. And it kind of got to the point where the numbers were so low that it kind of just, it was just a downward slope. Because of this, they, their study, they knew kind of how to help these butterflies. And so from 1983 to 1992, they were introduced and they came from Sweden and they got introduced into three UK sites. And by 2008, the large blue butterfly had naturally colonized 25 other conservation sites. And there's thought to be about a thousand adults per hectare at the time. This was in 2008. And then also in Europe, the results, there's also been similar declines in these large blue butterfly species. But hopefully, based on these UK results that you know, when they're managing these these smaller scales, they're going to try and bring it into other countries. This research that I was looking at was from several years ago, so hopefully that has improved. But I just thought that was a kind of an interesting and complicated story. Cool. And that sort of like saving things from the brink of extinction based on our understanding of ecology, but doing it in a way that doesn't have a huge impact on the rest of the ecosystem seems new. It's nice. It's good. Interestingly, the mixo the only thing that I know myxomatosis from is that it was actually when rabbits were introduced to Australia and then like overran the whole country, they then introduced myxomatosis to kill off the rabbit. Um, but apparently, it happened naturally too. Plague, ra plague, rabbit plague. Mm. Horrible. Mm. Horrible for the rabbits and horrible for the butterflies, but probably pretty good for the ants and the plants. <laughs> Everything's a balance. Thanks, Naomi. So we're talking about saving things. Human intervention into the natural world. And the group of animals that Nick wants to talk about, humans have been intervening in for thousands of years. Very much so. They've been doing this for a long, long time. So I wanted to talk about Bombix Mori which you may not have heard of, and that's totally fine. I didn't know this name until I researched it. But Bombyx mori you will have heard of because it's the domestic silk moth. 
So I'm going to ask you two, if you were to guess, how long do you think domestic silk production has been taking place? 1,200 years. I'm going to go longer than that. I'm going to go 2,500 years. About 5,000 years. So double, 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 double. <laughs> yeah, so we've been doing that longer than we've had pyramids. Quite amazing, really. And they're incredibly domesticated. So you were talking about the wings, Nick. What if I told you that, yeah, silkworm moths can't fly? Sad. Yeah, they also can't mate without human assistance. What? Yeah, because they can't fly, they can't seek a mate. On top of that, they've evolved to have no fear of predators. Like French bulldogs. Also, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, they uh, have completely lost all coloration because what's the point? Hmm. Pretty bland. Yeah, just, yeah they're, they're pale looking, wing stunted moths. But they're incredibly important for humans, historically as well as now, for silk production. And they're so domesticated that we don't really know how they were domesticated or where they were domesticated from. So there is a sister one called the wild silk moth called Bombyx mandarina. Uh, mandarina obviously referencing where it's from, which is China. And sorry. And we don't know whether the domesticated ones are actually uh, Bombyx mandarina, which were then domesticated to become uh, Bombyx mori, or whether they were from a completely different species that uh, we domesticated entirely and that the Bombyx uh, mandarina is just related to it. The problem being is even with our modern genetic systems of analysis, we can't tell because the rate of evolution in domesticated uh, animals and wild animals is completely different. So if the genetic clock says they were separated, I don't know, uh, 10 million years ago, that doesn't really mean anything because 10 million years of evolution when we've been selecting for certain traits might have happened in the last 5,000 years. Yeah, really, really difficult to tell where they even came from. But we do know where they are now and what we do with them. So silk, I imagine everyone knows, we use it as a fabric. And it is made by caterpillars and most... I think all moths produce a silk cocoon. Some butterflies also use silk as an anchoring material to hang on to something when they become a chrysalis. So they, they can produce it as well. But how we utilize this is the caterpillars here, they eat constantly. And their favorite food is mulberry bushes. I think it's a specifically white mulberry bushes. And they eat and they eat and they eat and they eat. And they molt a few times, but in their last molting, they become a slightly different color. I think a slightly yellow color. And at this point, they start to spin a cocoon out of this silk. And yeah, they make a cocoon for themselves. And when they're finished, this is when humans step in. So the humans don't want that larvae in there anymore. So they leave them out in the sun to kill the larvae. And then they boil the cocoon to soften the silk. And then at that point, they basically pull out the strands. So each cocoon can have 300 to 900 meters of fiber. And it's a single fiber long. But about 2,000 to 3,000 cocoons are required to make about a pound of silk or uh, 0.4 of a kilogram. At least 70 million pounds of raw silk are produced each year. So that's about 10 billion cocoons are used in this, this process. So, yeah, they are bred a lot. But because of this, they're studied a lot. Because they were so understood in their life cycle and the ease of culture, 
they were insects which could be bred very, very quickly and we knew how to do it. He was really, really useful scientists. So fundamental findings of pheromones, hormones, brain structures and physiology have been made with the silkworm. This includes molecular identification of the first known pheromone, which was bombicol, which, yeah, you might notice from Bombix. But yeah, they are continuously used for sort of genetic research nowadays to sort of try and understand a bit more. But yeah, I just thought that was a, a little short insight into something we might encounter in our regular lives and think about, but we never really actually think about the animal behind it, which is the silkworm. Also, not a worm, terribly named. I didn't realize that each cocoon had such long fiber in it. It's really amazing. But I guess you need a lot of fibers to make a cloth. Yeah, it's exceptionally thin. So, yeah, uh, you need lots and lots of them spun together, uh, which is why yeah, 900 meters sounds long, but it's, it's not that much. So silk isn't vegan, I've just realized. No. Cool. Good to know, vegans. Mark that. Note that. Nick, thank you for that insight into 5,000 years of human history. Um, I, the cultural side of the butterflies and moths is a really interesting one, and one that I wanted to dive even deeper in, into my final topic, or our final topic for the day. I was thinking about butterflies and literature and wanted to, and I was inspired by Naomi last week reading from Sapiens to revamp my role as the literary correspondent, or rather share it around. So we've passed the cup again, and it's back to me. And I wanted to share a text from one of the greatest writers and lepidopterists the world has ever seen, Vladimir Nabokov. And this is a section from midway through his autobiography, Speak Memory, that I wanted to read to you guys today. Uh, and it has to do, it, it takes place where he's uh, on a hike alone looking for butterflies that he's read about and has never seen before. So it sort of follows that journey. On the other side of the river, a dense crowd of small, bright blue male butterflies that had been tippling on the rich trampled mud and cow dung through which I trudged, rose altogether into the spangled air and settled again as soon as I had passed. After making my way through some pine groves and alder scrub, I came to the bog. No sooner had my ear caught the hum of diptera around me, the guttural cry of a snipe overhead, the gulping sound of the morris under my feet, than I knew I would find here quite special arctic butterflies, whose pictures, or still better, non-illustrated descriptions, I had worshipped for several seasons. And the next moment, I was among them. Over the small shrubs of bog bilberry, with a fruit of a dim, dreamy blue, over the brown eye of stagnant water, over moss and mire, over the flower spikes of the fragrant bog orchid, the Nochnaya Fialka of Russian poets, a dusky little fritillary bearing the name of a Norse goddess passed in low skimming flight. Pretty Cordigera, a gem-like moth, buzzed all over its oligonose food plant. I pursued rose-margined sulfurs, gray-marbled satyrs. Unmindful of the mosquitoes that furred my forearms, I stooped with a grunt of delight to snuff out the life of some silver-studded lepidopteron throbbing in the folds of my net. Through the smells of the bog, I caught the subtle perfume of butterfly wings on my fingers, a perfume which varies with the species, vanilla or lemon or musk, or a musty Swedish odor difficult to define. Still unsated, I pressed forward. At last I saw I had come to the end of the marsh. The rising ground beyond was a paradise of lupines, columbines, and penstemons. 
Mariposa lilies bloomed under ponderosa pines. In the distance, fleeting cloud shadows dappled the dull green of slopes above the timberline and the gray and white of Long's Peak. I confess I do not believe in time. I like to fold my magic carpet after use in such a way as to superimpose one part of the pattern upon another. Let visitors trip. And the highest enjoyment of timelessness in a landscape selected at random is when I stand among rare butterflies and their food plants. This is ecstasy, and behind the ecstasy is something else, which is hard to explain. It's like a momentary vacuum into which rushes all that I love, a sense of oneness with sun and stone, a thrill of gratitude to whom it may concern, to the contrapuntal genius of human fate, or to tender ghosts humoring a lucky mortal. It gets a little bit philosophical at the end, or something poetic beyond the butterflies, but I think the butterflies are integral to to his to his writing and to his work. He, in an interview that I read this week, he said, if the Russian Revolution hadn't happened, he would have happily spent the rest of his life describing butterflies instead of writing novels, uh, which I think is really cool. It's, it's nice to see the, the beautiful side of science and field work and the butterflies from a different angle than when we've looked at them before. I really like that. Thank you for that. It's nice to end too on a bedtime story. I hope those of you listening might have talked yourselves in bed. But um, for the rest of you, get ready for next week because we'll be back. Well, we haven't reached the peak this week because next week we're back with beaks. So if you're interested in all that chumps, snips, snaps, and bites, join us next week where the natural selection will present beaks. Until then, that's all from us. And goodbye from me and the rest of the Natural Selection Presents crew. Bye. Bye. Unseated by the painted lady. They sound like wrestling. <laughs> I'm the monarch. I'm the painted lady. I'll dethrone. Anyway, okay.